There's a new bonsai convention going down in the Midwest in 2024. It's gonna be May 3rd through the 5th at the Gateway Convention Center in Collinsville, Illinois. It's put on by the Bonsai Society of Greater St. Louis. And I highly recommend you check this one out because they're doing everything right. I think that they are just doing a phenomenal job with the entire expo and convention. So to start off, they got six just incredible headliners. They have Bjorn Bjorholm of ASAN, Tyler Sherrod of Dogwood Studios, Andrew Robson of Rakuyo N, Maria Hadstick, Young Cho, and Maro Stemberger. So super high level guest artists. I'm very, very excited that they were able to line up those people. I don't think they could have done a better job with that. That is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, they're doing $7,500 in cash prizes for the trees, the Kusumono, and the Suiseki Expo. They have $2,500 for the tree that wins best in show. I'm currently calling for entries right now. So if you go to bonsai central, bonsai-central.com slash entries, you can enter your tree. Deadline is February 1st, 2024. So once again, bonsai-central.com slash entries. You can check that out. Uh, in addition to that, they have 14 plus workshops. They have 12 informal pop-up demos, two formal demos. They have dinner, which is going to be included with the price of admission on Friday, Saturday. They have nine plus bonsai and kusumono lectures plus Q&A sessions. They have three professional roundtables and they have over 15 awesome vendors all confirmed. I would definitely recommend you check out the site and look at the workshop material. I am pumped. I would literally buy every single juniper if I could for the workshop price. I think that they are not charging enough there. They have these awesome twisty junipers. I don't know where they got them or how, how they were able to obtain them, but I would buy all of them. Of course, they're saving them for the workshops. Uh, they have really great workshop material. A lot of times workshop material, I'm like, eh, it's all right. But this workshop material is looking very high level. So for more information, I would go to bonsai-central.com. You can learn all about the convention, and I am very proud to say that they are a sponsor for this episode. Thank you so much. Definitely the check them out. It's almost like once you start doing it, I you almost have to. Like it, it, yeah. it's. He takes his hand and grabs his hat on top of his head while he's looking at it. The Black Panda Podcast. You can ask me anything. I'll, I'll talk about whatever. <laughs> nice. Okay. But yeah, how are you guys doing? How, what have you, uh, what's been keeping you both busy lately? Children. Him. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Yeah. They, they keep you busy. Pretty much it. Kids. Yeah. I yep. understand that. Have you been able to uh, do much collecting lately? or Me or go ahead. I've done a little, a little more than last year. But, yeah, Steve's been getting a lot done. So Every weekend or every chance I get, I pop my knee 
what, three weeks ago? Oof. Almost a month ago, I guess. Just, I don't know if it's the MCL or it's one of the L's in your knee. And uh, so I've been kind of taking it easy on that. And it's getting a little better. So I wasn't even packing out a tree, thank God. Well, I was kind of, sort of. I'm coming to you since you won't think it's your me. Oh, well, I don't want people to talk. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy i knew i knew you guys liked each other but i uh i'm i'm making you get real close here i like it <laughs> you guys worst bo at the end of the day yeah well we went yeah i guess how's your garden to- coming uh it's going it's going good it's going good i'm i'm having a koi pond built right now and uh oh, sweet they, yeah, I think they're going to be pouring the cement tomorrow. So they're doing a like a monolithic pour. So they built out all these, uh, what do you call them? Uh, like the the framing for it, and they're mm-hmm. just going to pour it all tomorrow. So I'm I'm very excited about that. So Should they're just going to kind of freehand the pond then, as far as finishing it. Yes. Yes. So oh, that's sweet. That'll be that'll that'll look cool. Yeah. I'm I'm excited. I'll definitely be posting lots of pictures. Yeah, for me, it's funny. Like I actually thought about the idea of getting a koi pond first when I was up in the mountains, up in the Sierra, uh-huh. and I think I was eating my lunch by a tree, and there was a river there, and I could see some trout in the river, and uh, just the thought of of fish and and you know Sierra junipers and rock that's really what i want in my garden and it just ma- it reminds me of the sierra it's not exactly you know like i was thinking it'd be cool to have a trout pond or something like that with your trees but i think that's unrealistic and would be hard uh, they're they're <laughs> high maintenance for sure <laughs> i need a lot colder water i've looked into it too so yeah you've looked into it nice very cool. Was that for yeah. more so for fishing or just for to be a cool feature no, in your bonsai garden? A feature in the garden with awesome. trout, but it would be difficult. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure, well, for sure. Koi are just double tough. You can't hardly kill them dang things. They're just. Uh, my daughter had a, a a goldfish she won at the uh, the Cheyenne Frontier Days, or she didn't win it. It was a little kid came up to her and, and held the jar, the bag with the fish in it and said, you want my fish? Mom says she's going to flush it down the toilet if you don't take it. And so she took it. And that thing was like almost 10 years old. And it was, she had a huge, it was probably maybe 10 inches long. Wow. And, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and her husband cleaned the water and killed it. Oh, no. Yeah, he thought he was doing oh, no. her a favor and cleaned it up, cleaned up the the bowl that she had it in, and and it just bellied up. So he was oh, in trouble. Geez. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, hey, thank you guys so much for for joining me I, tonight. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, it's been so fun to follow you guys on Instagram and on the forums and. Uh, it was it was a great experience for me to drive out to to Wyoming, pick up pick up a couple trees, and and drive all the way back. 
Um, that was a speed trip for sure. It was definitely a speed trip, but uh, the Ponderosa that I got from you is still doing well. We repotted it this spring. We did a very light repotting, uh, but it, it's it's grown strong. So, oh, right on. You to know that. <laughs> yeah, I love. Always that worry so about them. You know, after especially a tree like that, when you get it to somebody, you're always kind of wanting to see what what they get done with it. I mean, it's really cool to watch the transition and the and the evolution of them. Absolutely, so. completely agree with that. And I feel like it's it's moving a little bit slow. Like I, I'm, but I'm purposely doing that. I just want to make sure you know it's rock solid. I'm way more concerned about the health as opposed to pushing it along too fast. I don't want to overdo it, so I'm just taking it nice and slow and making sure that it stays really healthy. Well, I think that's a very wise choice myself. I mean, slow is good. Are the graphs taken, or have you, you know, done it yet? So we we did one round of grafting, and it was, uh, I, I think we got about three to take, but we probably put on like 11 or something like that. So it did have a little bit, it, it got a little bit of spider mites last year, and so it wasn't yeah. like super vigorous. And I think that uh, when trees are very vigorous, they respond much better to the grafts taking. So... Yeah, and I, I've heard just in general, it's kind of hard to get Ponderosa to to take the graphs. They do, but it just is a little bit more challenging than some other species. So, yeah, nice, awesome. The old MTV robot guy. You'll be going along, <laughs> then you kind of. <laughs> awesome. Well. Yeah, uh, I was hoping that maybe I could kind of jump into questions that I have for you. And then we actually got quite a few questions, maybe like close to 20 or so. And so the other thing is, if you guys need to take off at any time or if if we're going too long, just feel free to cut me off. Uh, Really value your time. Thank you guys so much for jumping on. One thing I I was hoping could you could you guys give me just a little bit of brief intro in terms of how you guys met and made a connection? Um, I met Steve at a bonsai class that my wife drug me to, and then he, the two older gentlemen that were teaching the class, brought Steve in to show off his collected trees, and then, um just kind of all started hanging out doing bonsai together and then started collecting together. I don't know, a year or two after that. Yeah, probably. Dan come in full, just full bore, man. He hit it hard. And once he got interested in it, he did, he learned more in like three years than I had in probably 10. I mean, he was just sucking it up and soaking it in and he kind of gathered all of us together and kind of got us into a club and, he, he he took the bull by the horns and and really kind of made a club out of the local people here. And had uh, like first Saturday every month we get together and and have lunch. Everybody does, and that's kind of because of Dan. And but. nice work, nice work, Dan. <laughs> Got to hang out with the right people. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And then, so, Steve, how long have you been collecting trees now, approximately? 
Well, I uh, I started in what ninety seven, but it was I used to do uh, go whitewater kayaking all the time, and uh, I took it a little too far, shall we say? <laughs> My wife suggested that if she wanted to still be married, I ought to find something to do a little closer to home, maybe. And uh, so I took the hint and I thought, you know, I always thought bonsai was cool. So I, I got went and talked to the two old fellers in town that were that did bonsai and uh, kind of got started with them a little bit and then went up to the mountains and saw some trees on on the, in the rocks and I collected the basically the first ponderosa I collected I've still got wow just That's a little great. cascade and it's not much but it's it's kind of like I said it's still alive so that's a big plus <laughs> so, awesome 26 years ago holy shit the bed is it yeah I guess it's been a while very cool and then uh Dan, uh, do you do you have somewhat of a obsessive personality? Would you say, like uh, Steve was saying, that you, so. yeah, yeah, that's yeah, fantastic. I would say so. It helps I in some areas, maybe not in others. <laughs> nice. Is there other like have in, any other point in your life have you been super passionate about another hobby or interest? Guitar. I went pretty hardcore with guitar and still play, but not nearly like I did before, before Same I got here. too deep in the bonsai. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah. The trees, they kind of grab you by the soul and don't let go. Boy, it's, it's just, it's, I do kind of enjoy winter. It kind of gives me a little break from water, but uh, other than that, uh, it's, it's, it's what I do anymore. I mean, it's all about trees. But. That's fantastic. Yeah. Ah, yeah. There's, there's some echo that I'm hearing. It, is it the vault is the coming out kind of funky for you or you think it's okay? I'm right here. Sorry. I don't, I don't know if it's, it's a, his, his living or his uh, kitchen. It's a big room here. Yeah. It might be in it. Gotcha. I okay. Move outside, see if it's, so, uh, I'm just curious. I, I feel like you may, you both made a really good transition into collecting bonsai. And I'm curious if, uh, if the things that you've done previously in your life, like hunting and whitewater rafting, that type of thing, did that help you get into collecting bonsai? And would you tell me a little bit about your background in uh, kind of the outdoors in general? I'd say it probably led to both of our interest in collected trees, just being the outdoors type. When you're you're out, you know, out and about in the mountains, and you see these really cool gnarled up trees, they've always uh, they've always interested me, and I've always been just taken aback by them. And you see some of the places trees are growing up in the mountains, it's like. You're trying to figure out how in the hell a seed got there and ever got started to get to be a tree that was eight inches in diameter, you know, hanging off of a cliff. But 
So absolutely, being out of the woods all the time, and, and then like the kayaking, going down the go- river gorges, you'd see a lot of really cool trees. So yeah, it it had to help on the interest, I'm sure. Nice. Tell me a little bit more about the uh, whitewater rafting. I'm just really curious. That that sounds like a whole lot of fun and a little bit dangerous. Well, the re- one of the reasons I kind of quit is because I didn't I didn't like being scared anymore. I mean, that's part of it. You know, that's the adrenaline rush. You start at the top of a drop and you you just scared shitless you're thinking oh my god what am i doing and then you get to the bottom it's like yes you know you're just happier than a pig and slop then you know you're then it's all world but it's just a it's it was a lot of fun but i started when i was probably in my 30s so but we had some of them you see some of the younger kids and they're doing stuff that i wouldn't have done ever but they're you know, when you're younger, you're bulletproof and you're never going to die. And you know how that is. And you start getting a little older and it's like, you know what? It, you go play for three days and it takes you five to heal up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's, it was fun. It was, a, it was a blast. I used anything worth floating from Douglas was 200 miles. So you had to drive 200 miles either south, east, north, or west, mostly north and west, over into the big mountains by out of Yellowstone and the Bighorns. Gotcha. Beautiful places. I've never kayaked, but I grew up skiing, like downhill skiing, and then backcountry skiing with my dad, and then backpack trips in the summer. And I've always grown up in the mountains, too, so it's just, I don't know collecting native trees out of the mountains just kind of seemed like the natural natural thing to do yeah that's that's fantastic so and then the looking for trees in the mountains is is, it's kind of like hunting in its own right too you know you're you're wandering around and you top up over a little rise and there's a beautiful tree with just gorgeous dread deadwood and your heart drops into your socks and you run over there you find out it won't come out <laughs> oh you know well you know just what i'm saying yeah unfortunately i I'll, i feel like a lot of them don't come out you know <laughs> it's like the majority, the majority of them. yeah yeah well and that's that's a big uh I think misunderstanding a lot of people have on the collecting too, if it's done responsibly. I mean, if you go out there and you jerk everything out, you can possibly, if you can see two roots on it and you dig it and you know, it's going to die. I mean, that's irresponsible. But if you do it responsibly, I mean, you can go up in the mountains and you know, all well, you can walk for four hours and see 25, 30 trees that would be beautiful bonsai. And maybe two of them might come out with with nominal or fair roots. And finding the one phenomenal tree that'll come out with good roots is probably one in a, I don't know, one in probably 400 for a 
rough guess. I don't know. Depending on the species. Yeah, true. Yeah, it does seem to be quite rare where you can get something that actually has quite a bit of roots. And, uh, you know, I actually started out collecting Utah juniper and a little bit of California juniper. But those two types of trees don't actually grow in uh, on rock. And for me, I couldn't get as good of a root system with those types of trees. It's a different type of collect. And I've really come to appreciate collecting up in the Sierra where it's all on rock, on granite, because you find oh, those yeah. pocket trees and you can get so much root, so much nicer. Are all, all the trees that you guys collect for the most part on on rock would you say i'd say 98 percent of them if not 100 percent, basically yeah conifers that's basically just what we focus on as well yeah. now like the aspens and stuff they're they're in the ground but sure what's uh what's collecting an aspen like digging just dig around it and lift it and i i don't know People have different opinions on removing field soil, but with with any deciduous tree, I'm I'm a lot more brutal with with soil removal. I if I dig them in the fall, I've brought them home, kind of bagged up with all of the field soil around them, and then just poke, leave the top open and poke holes in the bottom and keep them moist for the winter. And then I do the root work in the spring. But um, I prefer digging them in spring, right before they right as the buds are swelling, and then I just I just do all the root work and soil removal right there. It's easier to pack them out, bring them on, them, and they do great. So, yeah, it would seem that uh, spring would be a good time to collect them. Yeah, as long as you can get to them, that's the here lies a problem sometimes. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There, Too much snow. There's been years where, yeah, exactly. You've got a drift that's keeping you from going. It's clear. The road can be clear on either side, but you got a big old drift. You can't get around it. So you're either stuck trying to walk five miles to a good tree spot or, or you don't go. <laughs> Wait another month. Yeah, absolutely. Question that I'm really curious about is, uh, are you guys selling a lot of trees to the general public these days, or have you kind of transitioned your business over just to working with professionals? Uh, we still will, but yeah, we're pretty much just filling, filling orders from professionals at the, for now. And then if we have trees left at the end of the year, a lot of times those will get offered up to some people that have been asking us, but, but we're pretty... We're just trying to keep up with what the pros want is kind of what we've had time for, for the most part. But yeah, I, and I think that's, that's good. Yeah. I, I don't know. Selfishly, I really hate shipping, boxing and shipping individual trees and trying to trust FedEx or UPS to, to handle that without destroying something or even just doing a whole crate for one tree is, is, yeah, I mean, tell people, well, here's the price for the tree, but it's going to need a crate. So we're yeah, looking at $500 to ship it to you yeah. on top of the price. So it's just there's a little bit of sticker shock or shipping shock, shall we say, on that one. 
yeah, I think that makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, just all that time and effort and just going back and forth with individual people and dealing with shipping and uh, it's, I just, I feel like uh, it would be a much better way to go just to deal with professionals, sell a lot of trees at one time. That would just make a lot more sense to me. And it's not that we won't sell to people. It's just, it's logistically, it's so much easier for us to pro comes out and says, all right, I want these 15, 20, 30 trees. And they load them up in a truck and drive home with them versus like you said, all the back and forth. And I mean, some people are serious and then other people are, Oh, well, can I see 15 different angles and pictures? And I want the caliper at the base and then two inches up and then how tall is it? And, and then 15 emails later, they say, I think I'll wait. It's like, it's, just, it's easier for a pro to come and say, I want it or I don't. Yeah. I but, completely, under, completely understand that. I don't think you should be feel bad in any ways. I mean, you could spend that time that you're, you would have to boxing everything up, shipping it, dealing with people, you know, out in the mountains where I feel like we would, we would like to see you <laughs> oh, yeah. spending more time collecting. And we did like, we supplied a bunch of trees for the ABS seminars in Denver this year for a couple of workshops. And so we dug trees we wouldn't necessarily normally dig for that. I mean, they're still good trees and worth more than the price of the the workshops was. But but still, I don't know. Well, the type of trees we want to collect and get into the American bonsai community are, are uh, unfortunately, they're not as accessible to everyone. But maybe at the same time, we kind of prefer to see those go to professionals that we really know are going to take them to the the level they need to be taken to. So absolutely. Well, a guy, a guy. Uh, when you've got a tree, I did some cross sections and I did a Instagram post on it here a couple of days ago about aging some trees that I that that I'd lost. And when you've got a tree that was oh an inch in, or two inches in diameter and it's got four hundred growth rings in it, you know, you start looking at your trees a little bit differently. You know, with you respect I respected them before, but after you realize how old some of these are, I mean you really get a respect for them and, and you think, well, you know, some Native American might have napped an arrowhead next to this thing for crying out loud or or a Mountain man wandered by it, stepped on it with you know when he was going by or, or what have you you know any scenario you can think of, but then it 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 makes you feel responsible for the tree to a degree. You just don't want to give it to a guy that's just starting in bonsai and he's got a good his he he means well, but you know that if he's gonna just fiddle fart with it until it's dead. You know, and and so so you try to try to weed through and and find people that are that are have been studying with with good professionals, and you try to ask a few questions, make sure that that they really are into the bonsai to the level that the tree needs, shall we say? I don't know if I'm explaining that right, but yeah, oh, hundred percent. Yeah, you. Uh, I mean, you worry about the tree. 
I mean, and it's it is a respect thing because uh, just like you won't you won't try to pop a tree out that that it, you know is not going to make it just because you think it's the greatest tree in the world, but you think, well, maybe maybe this juniper will grow some roots if I pop it off, and there's four roots there, so maybe it'll maybe it'll make it. Well, you know, dang good, well, it ain't going to. So you just sit down, soak it in, and and walk on. But yeah, I no, completely agree with you. I mean, they're really ancient trees, and they really demand our respect. Uh, there's no, I mean, they. <laughs> We just we gotta respect our Yamadori. It's such such great quality. Um, I was curious, Steve. How are you? Uh, how are you counting the rings on those trees? And is that really challenging? Because I would probably, after about twelve counting about twelve rings, I'd probably lose my place. And uh, did you have to start over like twenty times? <laughs> oh, it all depends on if my wife had something to say, and then I'd start listening to her and I lose track, but you're a good husband. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> my wife would probably be three or four or five times in trying to get my attention and go, Oh, what? <laughs> well, but all I've got a, a binocular microscope that I, I just bought it off eBay oh, and cool. I'm not sure what the power is. It's uh, at least a hundred, I think. But cause it, all it has is a one and a two two times on the on the eyepiece or the the optic ocular or whatever the the part that looks at the the start of your lens and then it's got two uh, lenses you look into like a, a set of binoculars and it's got a light on it shines light down on what you're looking at and you can focus it and everything. It's it's pretty. It didn't cost me more than I think I paid maybe sixty eighty bucks for it. It was used, but it works perfect for for what that is. Yeah, that that's so cool. I'm glad that you are that you're doing that. Um, what well, are some? Yeah, what have you found? Like how many, how old are uh, some of those trees? Well, the the limbers. They're they're really far reaching. It it all depends on where they're at, you know the the water that they get. Like this said, the one of them I had, I counted and it got really hard to count the rings because they were so tight, and there you can see the cells in the in the wood, but you're, you're trying to make sure you're not counting cellular lines, cellular divisions instead of the growth rings when they get so small, but that one I had, I think it was 400. And, oh crap. 454 rings. And it wow. was maybe two and a half inches in diameter. And then there was the second oldest one was 364. And it was probably four and a half inches in diameter and five foot tall. And then another one was about the same size as the first one, about the same diameter, and it was only 128 years old. So it'll, the first one had a lot of deadwood on one side, kind of like well, a lot like the junipers will desiccate on one side. And the youngest one had good living bark or cambium layer all the way around it. It didn't have any deadwood on it. So. That's a way to judge it, I guess, is if you got a bunch of deadwood 
that it's gone through a few more years. But, um, All right. So one thing I, I'm really curious about is, are there any goals that either of you guys have somewhat bonsai related? Anything you guys really want to accomplish still? I mean, you guys have done such an incredible job with collecting all this absolutely phenomenal Yamadori. But uh, anything personally that you guys are working on? Oh, I need to get more into the design end of it. I mean, as far as potting, I'm comfortable as can be with, with repotting. Because, you know, you, you box 60, 70 trees a year, which is nothing compared to, say, Randy. But uh, so you get to see a lot of root pads and you kind of understand them a little more, which helps a lot in collecting, too, actually, is, is understanding the, the different styles of root pads. Well, we've, and we've repotted into bonsai pots quite a few trees at this point, too. Yeah. So. But the, the actual design of the tree flummoxes me. I'm always just, I'm such a big chicken. I just, I'm scared to death to cut the wrong damn branch. And then all of a sudden I've ruined the tree. <laughs> you haven't run into that problem yet. Mm, that's because I'm chicken. I don't do nothing. I just let them grow into hippies. I got a lot of live trees, but they're, they're hippies. They're <laughs> unkempt, shall we say. <laughs> do you, uh, Steve, do you work on your trees in a bonsai club or some type of workshop type format very often? Or do you usually do work by yourself or maybe with Dan? Um, Dan and I will we'll do stuff together sometimes, but Dan usually, that's one thing he's really helped us out a bunch is he started calling professionals years ago. I mean, the first person he got out here was, uh, oh, sh- Owen Reich. Owen Reich. And he did a few trees for us and we thought, well, that, that was a lot of fun. So then he, Dan started getting some of the b- bigger name professionals come and that was, it's really been an eye opener. I mean, you, you, you see this like, Ryan or Bjorn wiring a tree is like, holy crap. I mean, they just goes lickety split and they've got it done. And, and it's, it's really been interesting and, and so much fun. And then we get uh, Todd Schlafer comes up and works with us every, uh, once in the fall and once in the spring. And that Todd's a, he's a stellar individual. He's a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, these yeah. guys get those guys to come when you have trees they want. So this is true. <laughs> nice. And then you know, it, financially, it's it, it's easier for us to to barter with trees, and and then when they're when they've got a tree order, then you know we just knock off. And they they do a little bit of work with us for a day or two or three, and and then that just comes out of the trees. Out of the trees. It's a win win. We don't have to we don't have to explain to the wives why why we just wrote a check to Ryan Neal for, for however much. Yes. Yeah. If it was just doing it without having the, the barter power, I mean, we wouldn't have, they wouldn't be here. (laughs) Makes total sense. We're pretty, we're pretty spoiled by golly. We've got some of the best Yamadori country in the world. And then 
uh, as I've told Dan more than once, we're just spoiled shits. <laughs> we're lucky. Or lucky, Absolutely. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you definitely are lucky. Uh, Dan, what about you? What kind of goals do you have with Bonsai? I'll just keep growing. Keep building the collection. Nice trees. Weed out a few as as I get too many for nicer ones. But I'm not not anything too crazy. I like I like I like pers- I really like the whole process um, from beginning to end of finding the tree or Steve finding the tree. Either way, but a nice tree and then the design process and and then potting refinement and get it to a show, get it to show even some of the trees I've shown, I still have goals to refine them more and then show them again, the future a lot more refined. And, um, and then just heck I'm, I grow seedlings and cuttings and if I find a nice maple trunk, I like and get it and just refining those. I, I really just enjoy the whole thing. And then I don't know. I personally like, teaching and then kind of sharing my love for bonsai. So I go around and teach at different events and to different clubs and stuff. So that's awesome. Yeah, definitely. And you're also working on uh, creating a bonsai garden, right? Yep. Yep. Slowly. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Slowly. (laughs) I think Um, yours is moving a lot faster than mine. Uh, (laughs) Ah, yeah, it takes a lot of work to create a bonsai garden and, uh, and it's, it's a little expensive, so I got to take it slowly. (laughs) Uh, yeah, cool, cool. Um, one thing I was really curious about is, uh, for both of you guys, what, what makes you decide to sell a tree as opposed to keep it? Well, as you know, you, you come out upon a tree, and and if it's something that just enamors you, 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 it does it right from the start. Usually, it does for me. I mean, you're like, oh man, that ain't going nowhere. <laughs> and then there's other ones that you just you. Sometimes you fall out of love with them. You're like, yeah, it's not not the greatest thing. I I, I could sell that, I guess, or. And there's some of them where you sold that I've 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 had regret afterwards too. But yeah, I've got a better chance of finding another tree than people that bought the tree. So so I guess it, it all works out. That's true. And Dan's always telling me not to. He says, "I says, oh, I'll find another one." He says, "No, if you like it, you need to keep it." <laughs> okay, good advice. I mean, I've sold trees too that I wouldn't mind getting back, but I don't know. At the same time, I really enjoy seeing them progress, whether it's with me or with somebody else. So, um, I don't know. I have certain trees that, that I absolutely love and would be really hard to sell. And then other ones that I really like, but if somebody wanted it bad enough, it'd be a little easier to let go. And then depending on who it was too. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. We collect enough trees that it's you kind of you're just kind of looking at them every day, watering and checking on stuff, and and sometimes one really just kind of settles with you, and you go, you know, that one, I think that one's going to stay with me, and then 
other ones, you know, it's an amazing tree because that's why we collected it. But you know, it can it can move on to somebody else. So I don't know. Gotcha. Can't keep all of them. Well, that's it. I mean, you can. Or you could. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, size too. You'll you'll get some bigger. We'll we'll bring down some bigger trees, and you're thinking, well, God, I'd love to have that tree, and and. Uh, then you're thinking, oh, my God, how am I going to move this damn thing? <laughs> so a lot of times the the smaller and the medium size kind of win out a little bit just on the wintering. Because here, like I've got a gravel bed that I bury them in. So every, every uh, fall, then just before the bad weather starts, I dig them all into the, to the gravel and bury them. And then put everything else into a cold frame. So, and that's a lot of work. So, being able to move them by yourself is kind of handy because otherwise, I'm hollering at Dan to come over, or my son to come over and help me move trees, which they always do it. But Dan never complains. My son never really complains, but I know he's going, Oh man, come on, Dad. But <laughs> I'm just like, Oh, hey, I get to walk around Steve's trees again tonight. Cool. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, I know uh, I've asked my wife to help me move some big trees before, and I feel bad about that. But sometimes uh, I just can't, you know, the real big ones, like every once in a while, I just need a little bit of help. <laughs> so You might have to join the dingo club before too long. Yeah, yeah, I would like to join that club, actually. Uh, how much? How much are those things? Do you have any idea? Oh, I've looked them up. I don't I think the ones I saw were something like 20, 30 grand, which is out of reach for me for now. (laughs) But I'm sure there's used ones out there for less. But Wow. That's more than I thought. (laughs) Hopefully I'm wrong. That's just in my head. So, Gotcha. Gotcha. I'll have to take a look. That's where you you just recruit your friends for a six-pack of beer or whatever. (laughs) It's a lot cheaper than the 20,000. Totally. Totally. Uh, one one thing I was curious about is, and if you guys don't want to answer this question or uh, <laughs> that's totally fine. I was curious, like, how do you, if you guys go out collecting together, how do you guys determine whose tree it is? Or <laughs> is it just like you guys split everything? Or how does that work? I've always, the way I've always done it, if I go out with someone, it's just like whoever finds it, we generally mark it. And that is like, you know, you have first dibs on that one. As far as our business goes, it's just when we collect together, when we sell them, they're 50 50. Just any trees we collect that day. And then when we collect on our own, it's usually just, just ours. But then as far as like, if there's, a particular tree that one of us really likes, then we might on a day that we're both at, we might say, yeah, I'm pretty into that one. But, and then sometimes that might fall. If we're both really into it, that kind of falls down to whoever found it. Oh yeah. So if you find it, it's yours. Basically. And uh, we always do kind of a little competition to see who's, who can find the best tree for the day. It's kind of an unsaid thing, but yeah. And then I think biggest, best, smallest, sometimes those all apply. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
and but and and if if it's a tree that I find, say, and, and I'm not wholly into it, and Dan's like, "Holy crap! What are you going to do with that?" As well, you know, it's yours. You know, it that's it just. If it's, if it's something that you totally are in love with, then then it's your tree. And if one of the other one, if if the other partner likes it better than than whoever wants it gets it, kind of a thing. And like Dan said, if we're if we're doing it for the business, then it's fifty fifty when we're working. When we're working together, out collecting, and then if we're on our own, then it's our tree. The proceeds, anyways. That's about the only way you could do it without having any kind of problems, you know. And totally, Dan's Dan's so hard to get along with. <laughs> I like I like Andy Smith saying, "If it's not fun, it's not bonfire." We always it. try to keep it pretty light and fun. Yeah, so. I think that's really important. That's that's yeah, why we're here, right? We're here to have fun. I mean, definitely, we want to appreciate the trees. Oh, exactly. Gotta keep it light and have fun. Oh yeah. I mean, you can be serious about looking and finding the tree and everything, but it's it's just when we get together, it's it's just a lot of fun because you know, we're you go that side, I go this side, and we'll work up a ridge and, and all of a sudden Dan's in front of me. I said, What are you doing? This isn't your side and he goes, Well, I saw a cool tree. <laughs> <laughs> so I always give him crap about about sneaking ahead of me, but <laughs> just don't be slow. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> uh, really fair because I feel like I always find most of the rattlesnakes and mountain lions and all that fun stuff. He needs to take his share of that. Oh, it helps <laughs> if you're deaf and you can't hear the rattlesnakes. So, Oof, I am not a fan of snakes. I'll tell you what, like one of my fears, spiders, spiders don't bother me for some reason. Uh, I, well, I guess mountain lions would bother me, but snakes really bother me. Like I'm scared to death of them. I just can't do it. You guys see a lot of rat- rattlers out there? Well, mostly when we're hunting junipers, maybe yeah. some ponderosas, but if you get high enough, you're, you're above them. And the only things out there are these little... I think they're called grass snakes. Little, really pretty green, like an ember, emerald green snake. And they're not poisonous or anything. They're garter snakes, but yeah. bull snakes. Yeah, the rattlesnakes, they're, they're in our juniper and ponderosa. A little bit lower elevation. Yeah, 7,000 and below, basically. Yeah. yeah. It never used to be at 7,000. We found, uh, I found a den, what, six years ago? Mm-hmm. And, uh, was walking along, had my dog with me, and and the brush moved, and I heard a bunch of rattling. And I realized the brush moved because he he was laid out next to the trail I was walking on, and he he coiled up, and that's what moved the grass. And then, uh, and then my dog he was going to come over, and he was just a big old doofus, and he was going to come over and see me, and I had to yell at him to get back, and and. Uh, so we got the heck out of there, but this really stinks too. Cause after you see one, then you're seeing them all damn day. You know, you're just a grasshopper flies off and you jump out of your skin. And, oh yeah. Uh, they actually sound a lot like a rattlesnake sometimes. Yeah, some of them do. Yeah. Yeah. Or you come across a bull snake. I seen one of them, uh, what was a Sunday? 
scared to be Jesus out of me. <laughs> what do you have for poisonous snakes where you collect, or do you? You know, I don't see very many. Uh, there's actually more rattlesnakes around where I live on the central coast. There's okay. certain spots, like uh, there's this place that I used to go hiking called Montana de Oro, and there was rattlesnakes there. But up in the Sierra, I don't know. I don't know why. I, I haven't really looked into it, but I, I don't see very many snakes. You're probably high reason. enough elevation there. Could be. What what elevation do you guys generally find trees around? Um, anywhere from the junipers are from, what, 5,000? Five to seven to eight, maybe nine. But uh, the ponderosa and the limbers, they're like, I'd say, seven-ish. Well, the limbers more seven-ish and then above. Ponderosas are probably, what, six, five, six mm-hmm. and above. And then once you get up to about eight, then you get into the lodgepole, spruce, and firs. Eight and nine. Nice. Yeah. Right here. Yeah. Right here, yeah. Cool. Yeah, C- Sierra Junipers seem to be about five and a half to to nine, I'd say. That's yes. kind of the range there. It's pretty yeah. big range. <laughs> yeah, it is. We run into a few high elevation Rockies, but, but they're a lot more sparse. Yeah. Like where we really find a lot of the Rockies are, it's almost all Rocky Mountain junipers down low. But one of my primary uh, juniper spots, I just was telling Dan Sunday, you know, you find common junipers everywhere. You know, you think, well, the commons are, they're just everywhere. Well, this particular mountain doesn't have, I've never seen a common on it. And it just, it just struck me last Sunday that, that there's no commons at all on it. And I was really looking for them then, and I've never seen a common on it. But yeah, I don't remember that either. Mm-hmm. Maybe like one or two ponderosa pines. Yep, there's some the whole thing. Yeah, there's some ponderosas on it, but that's no common junipers. And up in the mountains and the higher elevations, they're they're everywhere. I Very love the canvas. I've got a, a love hate relationship with the common junipers, but. They're they're suicidal. He's got quite the collection of them, though. And every time he posts one, so any more kids for you, Dan? Or are you are you tapped out? You got three, right? Three boys, and there's one on the way. Oh, so, yeah. one on the way. Have you last found one, out though? Last one. Found I was out? pretty sure I was done. We don't know what it is yet, I guess. But yeah. Not yet. Congrats, man. That's awesome. Thanks. <clears throat> yeah. Well, oh, I, yeah. You didn't know that yet? No. No. Sorry. It's the last to know. Oh, Jeez. you're far from the last to know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I was I was thought we were done with three, but apparently we needed one more. So <laughs> <laughs> congrats, man. Congrats. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Should know what it is soon. Very cool. How about you? Very cool. Uh, two. I got a boy and a girl, and we're done. <laughs> I love. I mean, they're they're absolute joy, but uh, also a whole lot of work and responsibility. Yeah, but I, I, yeah, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, 
It's true. A lot of work. Yeah, but there's yeah. nothing better. They're worth every. They're worth every hour of work, pouring and. Completely every, agree. Absolutely. Mine are all well done now. Yeah. How many? A lot of people say bonsai teaches. Nope. What's that? Oh, so sorry. I was going to say, do you have two boys? Yeah, two boys, two girls. Two boys, two girls. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Very nice. Very nice. The girls, they were very easy. I mean, they. I, I grew up with three or two brothers, so the girls just blew my mind. I didn't know why they were crying half the time. And, but the boys, my wife grew up with two sisters, so the boys blew her mind. So we, so we got even with each other. <laughs> she goes, what are them boys doing? I says, we're doing boy stuff. She goes, why? I says, because. Trying things. Yeah. My boys like to destroy everything. I bet. They can smash it, break it, take it apart, whatever they will. So far. Oh, man. Cool, cool. All right. Well, congrats, Dan. I'm really excited for you. And uh, that will be fantastic. Uh, why don't we jump back into it? Sure. Sounds great. Sorry about the Uh, interruption. Oh, no worries. No worries at all. Uh, let's see. Okay. So one question I have for you, we love to keep it fun and have fun when we are out collecting. However, is there anything that you don't like about collecting or anything that, that bothers you about collecting? Um, the only thing that really, I guess, they would aggravate me more than anything is trying to get permits from the federal government. I mean, they've made it just, they've made that a job. Uh, there was a, a lady that was... We tried to do a commercial permit thing here in, and uh, uh, talked with the foresters that they had for, I think it was about four years. And finally, this lady, she was in charge of it. And she says, okay, we'll do it. So uh, took six Forest Service uh, employees up and showed them all what we went for a three-mile walk and showed them trees and how you dig it and everything and and uh, and by the end of it when we finally got our permission to to dig the trees everything i told her that we needed was you know like trees on in in rock pockets and in and the older trees and everything was she pretty much said not to collect off rocks just anything to kind of curtail our our collecting of of the older trees and it was it was pretty aggravating, you know. And, uh, so he just kind of mainly try to do more private land than anything else. I mean, if you can get permission from an old rancher or whatever, they're like, they don't understand bonsai. Most of them, they're like, okay, whatever, you know. And you just treat them good, and if they need some help, you help them out, and and just treat them well and treat their land like it's yours. So just respect them and their place. And and they're all usually happy. 
I don't know. I kind of went off on a tangent on that one. Sorry. Oh, I mean, when you're out there, it's all pretty much enjoyable, but I mean, it's always a whole lot more work to pack the trees back than it is to go find them. And oh, yeah. a little less fun, but I don't know. I enjoy the whole thing. Well, that's like yeah. hunting in general, though. As soon as you shoot something, then the work starts. So it's it's kind of the same, I guess. Yeah. 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 <laughs> For me, I feel like uh, when I am out there, and a lot of sometimes I go collecting by myself, sometimes I go with somebody. I feel like I'm always uh, on a little, I'm kind of like on edge when I'm out there. Uh, and I think it's mostly just, I want to make sure, I want to be very aware of my surroundings at all time. And, uh, you know, I don't want to get pounced on by a mountain lion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, basically, you know, I'm just, I'm kind of like a, just on a, a little bit of a, a high alert the whole time. And uh, it's kind of hard for me to like relax. And I, I will, you know, maybe during lunch or something, but I'm just kind of always looking over my shoulder. And even though I'm enjoying myself and, you know, like I kind of go in and out of like really enjoying it, especially the treasure hunt kind of aspect to it. Sure. But then also just kind of just being on high alert. And, uh, it's, it's something that I, I'm not sure if I am doing it right meaning like i don't know if my mentality <laughs> is right and i i should be so amped up or if i need to like take a chill pill and relax a bit what do you guys think <laughs> well it's situational awareness so that's not a bad thing at all because but on you know being raised around it you know we, we get kind of con uh, uh, complacent a little bit too you know, like, and then you, the the more time you spend up there, the the more relaxed you get with it. Did you grow up in the mountains at all, or like backcountry? I did not grow. I did definitely did not grow up in the mountains. Although I was in Boy Scouts, and I was very lucky because my scout master was very was really into backpacking, and that oh, was cool. his passion. So he would take all these little Boy Scouts at out to go on these gnarly backpack trips up in the Sierra. And uh, I think that was a really good experience for me. And so uh, I, I got exposed to them being in, up in the mountains back then. That was great. Uh, but then, you know, got a driver's license, uh, started really getting interested in girls and playing in a band uh, and lost all interest in the mountains. And then basically, like, after I got a desk job i i realized how incredible the mountains are and it it started really balancing me out you know going up there and spending time up there and i realized the beauty again <laughs> well, i i think for me that it probably helps that i grew up out there and then i've i've done a lot of hunting and i've guided hunters for a number of years and and i don't know you're always ultra aware of your surroundings and and i don't know paying attention to everything and and so maybe that comes just a little bit more naturally just from having done it so much that you don't have to think about it quite so much and then i don't know even after 
maybe I should feel a little responsible for causing you to, to think about that more with the mountain lions. But um, I mean, even after that, they, it doesn't scare me so much. I don't, it's always a possibility, but it's at least out here. I, I wouldn't say a very likely possibility. And now like if I don't have my dog with me, I probably am paying a little bit closer attention, just looking over my back a bit more often. When I do have my dog with me, that's kind of her her job. They have a lot better sense for all this than we do. And if, if she goes on high alert or growls or barks or stops and starts looking in some direction really intently, that that's a cue for me to, to maybe pay a little more attention. But otherwise... That's not like dogs at all. Yeah. And they... That's it's a good deterrent in its own way. But I lost my my three hunting dog. He oh was it about four or three years ago, I think. He just got old and he had a, a tumor on his leg, so it was best for him to go into the afterlife. But so I, I pretty much go up by myself now. I, I pack a pistol with me. And if hopefully I'll be on on sharp enough to to be able to find one before he gets a hold of me if he does decide to try to take it. But the odds are pretty slim up here. I mean, they get hunted, so they're pretty pretty uh, spooked to people. And all the time, I, I go up to the mountains every weekend as soon as I can get up there. In April, March, if the snow's low enough. And I've never seen one out hunting trees. I've seen one hunting, going hunting in the morning, once with my youngest son. And that's the only mountain lion I've ever seen. I don't know if I'm just paying attention to the trees, looking for trees more and, and just not seeing them, or, but I. The one that Dan ran into was really an anomaly. You just don't see him that often. Yeah, I guess, Dan, I, I, I do blame you a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and rightly so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so. Probably the one thing, I don't know, maybe some of this comes back to being a dad with young kids and and married and all that, too. You, you think about coming home a little bit more than, oh, yeah. than maybe you would worry about it otherwise but I, you know i i'm a lot more careful on certain rocks and cliff edges and things than i maybe used to be or or would be otherwise i i look out there and i think you know that looks like a pretty cool tree but it also looks like a really good way to die i think i'll <laughs> pass on that one and you know so so i guess i would say i don't like like feeling unstable like i could easily slip off the rock so if it's if it's too much then if it if it's that good of a tree it might be worth coming back with ropes and and rappelling down or or at least being tied in but otherwise it's just like you know that's cool but not worth it i say that's probably more what puts me on on high alert than than the critters yeah i feel like you know how it is if you get a skiff of rain or whatever on that on the granite 
and it's got the lichen and there and moss or what have you, and it's just slippery and grease. Or you can bust your That's butt. the other one. Lightning. I hate lightning <laughs> when I'm That's up. That's fun. There's there have been too. more than a couple of occasions when we've been up there and and the lightning is is way too close for comfort. When there's no rolling thunder and it's just cracking right over your head, you know it's too close. Yeah, that was fun. And uh spot that I just found and we were walking around and saw this storm coming in. It's like, well, maybe we ought to get going. And so oh heck, I don't know. And we kind of him hawed and didn't want to leave. It was midday. And it's like, well, you know, probably we probably ought to get scooting because you could see this black, nasty thing coming at us. We got into a patch of trees and it started hailing. Oh, no. We 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 headed to the patch of trees because all of a sudden we hear this roar, like <laughs> It's like, uh, it's not sound good. <laughs> we got in under some some heavy timber and found the thickest tree we could to hide under. And I just remember the river water running down my Yeah. <laughs> running down the tree. The ground, was white. the ground was white with hail Yeah, and it was done. That was fun. And that was then on the way back from there, that's when we were, that was we were probably walking. the worst lightning storm I've been up there for. Yeah, it was, but, we, were, so we were walking in the bottom of this, you know, the rolling kind of prairie. Well, you got out of the trees and off the rocks and it was kind of some rolling hills. And the difference between the bottom to the top of the ridge was probably maybe 50 feet. So we're walking in the bottom of this, but it's it's all gradual. So it's more to make ourselves feel better than actual not making ourselves a target, I think. But then we had to top out to get to the truck and the lightning's just hammering all the way around us. It was, it was exciting. It's probably one of the worst. Yeah. That was nasty trips we've had. Been in a few of those, that one, that was the worst. Yeah. When you can feel all the hair on your, on your arms standing up, you know, you're too damn close. <laughs> we wear really big boots, so the soles, I think that helps. And one thing, I don't know if you've ever seen that course that's out now. There's a it's called Survival Med. That'd be a good one to take, but they cover all sorts. They're, they're doctors, but they're also outdoor enthusiasts, and they kind of say, here's here are the facts, and here's what you actually need to know in, in survival situations, and, um, you know, all that so nice it, pretty good but but their their section on lightning gets you thinking because apparently most of the people that are struck by lightning aren't actually struck from above they're struck through the ground currents so it doesn't even hit the person it goes up through the ground like oh. uh doesn't granite conduct electricity oh, I, like I, I, I think i've heard of people in yosemite getting electrocuted just uh high elevation and being on the granite I'm not sure. It's it's not a good chance. I don't think it's got any. Uh, you know, I'm not sure. It might. Or maybe it was just because it was such high elevation. It was the highest point, and that's why it hit them. I think it was like, what is it? Half dome. I'm pretty sure there. I've seen things. Half dome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people getting struck by lightning somehow up there. 
under uh, uh, during a storm, but lightning freaks me out as well. Being up there, it's, yeah, it's just, especially it's scary. More than once in Yosemite. Yeah, quite I think a few if, times there. I think if you're in your car, you're safe though, right? The rubber on yeah. your tires. Yeah. Your so. car, not so much, but you're okay. <laughs> nice. Have you guys, uh, have you been injured while collecting or what's kind of like the worst that you've been injured? Oh, taking a few tumbles here and there. Uh, just popping my knees, probably the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Well, that and I started having, a, oh, it wasn't gout, but uh, like my second toe in on my, uh, from my second toe from the big toe was all, I went to podiatrist on it because it was, it hurt like hell when I was walking, felt like there was a, a, a rock in the shoe. And uh, he said it was from wearing my work boots. I always wore ones with, with kind of a heel on them, kind of like tackers or say kind of cowboy boots, but not really. And uh, he said it was from having your heel up. And uh, I needed to do a bunch of stretches and stuff. And I just bought some shoes that weren't didn't have heels on them, but that, that helped. But nice. when I go looking for trees and, and say, if you if you do like eight, ten miles, then it'd start really bothering me. But that's about the, about the extent of it. Like Dan said, once you're, if you're up there by yourself, you you consciously don't take the chances that you would if you were with somebody. I mean, like going out on a point or or on a kind of a, a, a slippery slope where there's a thirty foot drop off on the other side. You just kind of hang back and you got to think of these things through because if something does happen, you're and you're two three miles in, it's kind of hard to get help to you. I do carry an, an in-reach now. Yeah, we both carry those. Well, Garmin SOS deal. You can hit a button and it'll send out an SOS signal to 911 and mark your location and everything. So we carry those. That's smart. Very smart. Nice. Any injuries for you, Dan? Um, I fall off a cliff. I want some. What's that? Nothing so serious. Tumbles and scrapes and cactus and. Nothing too bad. Yeah, sitting in a cactus is probably the premium one that I've done worse than any. Two pairs suck. Did Dan pull those out for you, Steve? Nope. Oh, I, he wouldn't even look at me. No, but my wife did. God love that woman. <laughs> That's when you know your wife really loves you. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. I'm done rocking. Had a gash in my arm and a bunch of cactus in my all over, so that was about the worst one. But. Gotcha. Well, I think uh, if it's all right, I think we should jump into uh, the questions that I got on Instagram and Bonsai Nut, if that's okay. Sure. Yep. And I do apologize for anyone listening. There is a bit of a, a lag here, so I, that's why I keep we keep talking over each other. <laughs> um, but I'm just going to ask a question and then let you guys answer. So, all right. The first question we got from Instagram was from Mr. Diaz, and he was asking, 
do you have any tips for common juniper, especially like uh, just being able to keep them alive? And or what's your experience with them? Oh, I mean, for me, I'm really, 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 really selective on the on the commons that I'll dig. It's got to have like damn near a hundred percent of the root, a fine root mass right close with it. And then you'll have like two or three, oh, say, uh, little finger size or chopstick size roots going away from it. And they'll, they'll, they go, they'll go for 16, 16 feet. But if you've got that good fine root pad right underneath it, then you've got fairly good luck. So you'll pop your, your bigger roots loose and take the pad and then try not i don't work any any of the soil out of the roots or anything i just not much i'll take maybe a a a hose with a light stream and wash a lot of the the mucky soil off but i don't work through the roots with a root hook or nothing or and and I'll, i'll save everything i got and then put it build a box for it that's that's about the right size you know just a little bit bigger and then put them in shade for the whole summer. They're in, so they get a little bit of light first thing in the morning, but they're in shade the rest of the day. And then when they come through, if they come out of it in the spring and they and they show growth the next spring, then I'll put them in in full light and and they they do great. But it's, put them in pumice like everything else. Yeah, just put them in straight pumice, and uh, the ones that we've done. The one that I've got that's in a good pot, uh, I planted it originally in in uh, decomposed granite and wood chips. Was when I first started, and uh, we old uh, Todd Schlafer helped me repot that one, and it was pretty much a slip. You know, we just slipped it out of the one I had it in. We took a little bit off, not much, and we just put it into straight pumice again. And talking with a, with most of the people I we've talked to, it said that, like in Europe, I guess they don't use akadama with the commons. the The person that we talked to about it had said that that the people he'd talked to had said that they didn't use akadama with the commons. And I don't know. And then they take I water mine just as I do the other junipers. I mean, they're I probably I probably water too much. But they're still alive, so I'm I'm happy. Nice. So more finicky than Rocky Mountain junipers? Oh boy, yeah, yeah. They're they don't like having their roots fiddled with at all. And you'll find one, and you think, oh, there's a good pad below it, and it turns out that all the pad is is moss and grass, and it's got one root the size of your middle finger that's running for 60 feet and you cut that root and it's dead it's all i can say is just you've got to have a really good fine root pad below it i mean better than you would for for a juniper a rocky mountain gotcha it's been my experience and then as it's as it's going through the as you have it in the shade it'll die back i'd say almost by half 
the interspersed in, in the in the the canopy. Yeah, they showed a lot of the interior growth and yeah. stuff. But but that's not a bad sign. If if the tree's selectively shedding some foliage and saving others, that's that's a good sign that the yeah. tree is is making the changes and adjustments it needs to. So yeah, when it's bad is when all of a sudden it starts turning that off green color and you're thinking, oh, it's looking a little bad and you're touching it, it's a crispy critter. So when they decide to give it up, they just give it up. Yeah. Way <laughs> way more so than the junipers, than the Rocky Mountains do. Gotcha. Perfect. Thank you so much for that answer. All right. The next question, a very serious question from Forest Pass. I think they're wondering how, why Steve is so powerful. The question is, what does Steve eat for breakfast? And uh, it's a trade I think, secret. <laughs> I think that uh, they're probably looking for something. Uh, like I, I just uh, envision you saying something super epic here, like elk and Lucky Charms, or just something crazy <laughs> like that. <laughs> Half a gallon of coffee. Cold coffee. It has to be cold. I don't mind cold coffee at all. It, he, he won't drink my coffee fresh. It has to get cold before he drinks. It could be a day old too. It's still fine. Awesome. But I actually, I I just started oh, about three weeks ago. I don't eat breakfast at all. I I go till lunch. I started doing that fasting. Eat supper at about seven six thirty seven, and then don't eat anything until twelve o'clock the next day. And it's trying to get some of my winter fat off. <laughs> You're looking good. I, I I really like fasting. I do the same thing. Usually I do t- just two meals a day and uh, it's really helped me. So that's great. Well, it hasn't been that hard either. I mean, I just, like I said, I do drink half a gallon of coffee. So <laughs> I wasn't lying about that. <laughs> me too. I like uh, just black, black yep. iced coffee. Cool. All right. Next question is from satoyama 81 have the mosquitoes been kind to the boys not bad at all this year yeah it's i expected worse this year but i have experienced much worse in the past i've been bad in town really bad in town all the wet all the moisture we've had but but up in the mountains it hasn't been it hasn't been bad at all horse flies have been in a few spots have been a dirty dog but other than that not bad all right, from Fangorn Bonsai, he would just like a story, a top story from collecting. On the spot here. Yeah. Once upon a time, we found a really cool tree. <laughs> I, don't know if I was going to throw this in earlier. I don't know if this is a top story, but we, we collected the first limber pine this year that we've ever had to lift the topper off the truck to fit it in. There is in the truck. That was that was an experience. Wow. They always get how, bigger. How big was it? When you first Oh, it's big. Oh. It's only about maybe three and a half foot tall. Yeah. Maybe. About about seven, eight feet wide. <laughs> long, yeah. Yeah. Probably six feet wide and seven foot long. Yeah. But I found it last year. 
and I started to dig it this this spring, and I was looking at it and going, man, I ain't man enough for this thing. So, and then plus I, it was kind of on a on the edge of a cliff. It was only about twenty five foot down, maybe. And so I, I got talked Dan into coming up the next weekend and and we got up there and, and I got kind of under it and we worked it away to where I could keep it from rolling over and Dan could keep it from keep all the soil on the roots. And it, it was definitely a two man tree. We and it's it's been going great. Yeah, carried it out between two of us because it wasn't it wouldn't have fit on a pack very well. No, it would not have. Nice good. work. Yeah, uh, that's fantastic. So next question is from Ryan Houston, host of the Bonsai Time podcast. He asks, in the Rockies and the Sierras, do you collect from rock pockets during the whole snow accessible season or only in spring and fall? So basically, do you guys collect when there's snow on the ground or just in, sp- in spring and fall? I've only collected in the snow maybe a handful of times. I always worry about them freezing too much before I can get them home. A lot of our collecting season, how much we can collect through the whole non-winter period. Depends on how much moisture we have. This year's been exceptionally wet, so we've been able to do more. And then there's certain times where certain species don't do as well. So um, if we can get up high early and get like lodgepoles and spruce early before bud break, they do well. We've had a lot less luck if we dig them kind of mid-candle, mid-early growth period. So a lot of times we try to not dig, say, lodgepoles and spruce. Either either early we dig them or we wait until they harden off and we dig them kind of mid-late summer. Um, ponderosas are a lot more forgiving. If you're if they're mid-candle, you can dig them. Um, limbers are not bad. Limbers are pretty good, too. But again, too, like if it's a really ex- exceptional tree, a lot of times we will to wait for a more optimal time just because and a lot of those really exceptional trees have may have a good root pad but it's marginal compared to other ones you could dig that day so so we'll if it's if it's not the optimal time a lot of times we'll we'll focus on trees that just have a really good root pad and we'll come back for the other trees that are really good what maybe the next spring yeah, either either late summer as they're doing their kind of late summer root push, if we have a good winter situation for it at home. Otherwise, it'll be a tree we go grab in spring. But smart, I like that. Well, it's all about the tree, you know. It's back to the respect. You don't want to just go on the ground and then all of a sudden have it hanging on to life, especially. And we have that, I don't know, it's easier for us since we live here to do those, to make those kinds of choices than it would be for somebody that travels out here and maybe it's their one trip or, or, or they only make a certain, have a certain amount of time each year to do that or whatever, you know, 
if you were under the gun like that and you found a phenomenal tree and it had a, a respectable reed bed, not exactly what you'd like to have, but that's your only time, well, then you kind of got to roll the dice. If you're traveling here to collect trees, there's a good chance you have a milder climate than we do. So, <laughs> easier, easier winter for the tree, maybe. But. Nice. All great points. And for me up in the Sierra, I would, uh, I really can't get to the locations that I collect at until about summer. So like, or June, early summer, that just because the roads are pretty much closed. So I usually start collecting in June and usually there is a lot of snow beforehand. I like collecting in June has worked well or in the fall works well for me, but I typically do not collect if there's too much snow on the ground or in the winter, I definitely wouldn't collect. Yeah. Next, And junipers, we can pretty much collect all growing season pretty well. So Nice. Do you guys collect in summer? Junipers? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Well, if the root pads aren't bone dry. That's a big, big deal, if it's if you've got a, a really bone dry root pad, you go to start digging it, and then they just break off. Whereas if it was wet and hydrated, then they, they they've got a little more give to them. So you do a lot more damage to the root pad if it's really dry. Always nice if you can go out right after a good rain. I feel like to go collecting. Oh heck yeah! But even we've we've noticed like. If we have a really hot July, hot August, and really dry, even if we do get a really good rain, sometimes those root pads are so dry, the water just runs right off of them. Well, they're damn near hydrophobic. Yeah. So yeah, it that's... takes a soaking long rain or... Heck, that's where one instance in bonsai where hail can be helpful because it, it, it melts a little bit more slowly into the soil. Ah, good point. Good point. Uh, the only point. All right. Next question from Ryan was, uh, what brand of hunting rack style backpack do you recommend? We just kind of have our go-to. I use a Kelly Cash collar. Really stock. The, the mainframe is what they call it. Either that or an X2. I mean, they're just bad to the bone little packs. I mean, they're, they're double tough. I've carried... On that uh, mainframe, I've carried a 150-pound tree out with it. Does it and, have a uh, a bar on the bottom? That one does. Yeah, it's got a, what they call a shelf. And then it's got these little pouches you can buy and zip into it for carrying your 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 tape, your bags, your, your tools, maybe a coat. And uh, then it's got straps that, that so you can strap it on really good because there's nothing worse than a tree moving on your back. If you don't have a strap down tight, it's you go to lean forward and it's going to take you over. A heavy one, yeah. But now they've they've and I had one that that I had problems with it. I a zipper went bad on it. Sent it back to them. They fixed it, no charge, and sent it back to me. Oh, that's great. That's great. And I've kind of I customized my 
Keldy had all new buckles on it so that I could put matching buckles and make extension straps and everything. And I couldn't find any extension straps to buy. So I just swapped everything out and that way. Because the ones that are on it are nice, but you get a big enough tree or a couple trees on there. And sometimes you can't reach all the way around to strap everything down. So Totally. Cool. All right. Next question from Parma 77. They, they <clears throat> love you, Steve. Um, <laughs> Steve, have you ever thought about just going with a stash? I did at one point in time, but I'm kind of lazy too. So I just, <laughs> I don't know. All right. Next question. This is, this is work. <laughs> it looks Steve's great. Luck. He's got a signature look. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, for, for, uh, let's see. From Bonsai Grounds, how can someone start collecting trees? What tips would you give for a newbie? Uh, what do we need to prepare? Well, just you know, make sure you have a pry bar, a set of... Uh, Skatures, or what the hell are they called? Pruners. Pruners. Maybe a little saw. We use tape and plastic bags and or plastic bags and black tape. I know other people that use uh, shrink wrap. The shrink wrap doesn't work for me. It, it's it. I don't. I don't. It, it just doesn't work for me. But the main thing is, if you're just starting out on collecting. Collect some simple trees to start with. If you've got a just a fabulous tree out there that you found and you're not worried about, say, a road being built over it or getting cut down or burned over in a fire or something like that, and you know it's going to stay there, then just perfect your your collecting skills on some simple trees. And then in a few years, go back and get the barn burner. How about roots? Yeah. This is like any other process we do in bonsai, like repotting. There's a process to it, to extracting the tree without too much damage to the root mass and um, start at the edge and work in, figure out where the anchor roots are and whether there's a solid pad of fine roots. You want the fine roots, not not a bunch of thick roots. That's treat it like any other process. Solid, solid. Maybe uh, start with some urban Yamadori might be a good good kind of starting point before you get into Yamadori. Maybe, yeah, totally or, different. I mean, I guess if they're asking about collecting and rot, that's one thing. And then, you know, digging a tree out of the ground is entirely totally different. I would, if I was digging out of the ground and I had the option, I would pretty much always, unless, I mean, till you get comfortable, dig a bigger hole than you think you need. And get more roots than you think you need when you're starting out. Well, our the rock pockets is high 90s. And, uh, my success rate on, on uh, pines uh, dug out of the ground is, is pretty slim. It just, just never worked for me. You just, the roots are too far interspersed. I mean, they're, and they're not condensed. There's been a few junipers I've collected that that surprised me that came back 
with not a lot of roots, but they but they survived. But generally, out of the dirt doesn't work. In been my experience, anyways. Deciduous trees. It's most. I think personally, it's mostly about timing. Either get them in spring, right as they're about to open up, or in fall, right as they drop their leaves. This is the optimal for deciduous. I don't know. I know there's guys that do tricks with bald cypress and stuff like that, where you can dig them, defoliate them, and they just come right. I I don't know that I'd try that with an aspen, but who knows? Maybe a a young one just for the heck of it to try it but i would just go for the times that i know are optimal sounds like a good plan <laughs> all right next question from roy minerai i think i know the answer to this maybe for for dan but i'm i'm not sure what's the scariest thing that's happened to you while collecting uh-huh. Well, the, the lightning storm we were talking about earlier was right in there. Other than that, slips and falls, start heading down a, a slope that's going to take you off of the 20-foot cliff and you're because you're on the rock and it was slick and you and you scratch and you stop yourself. It's like, well, it's time to get off the rock today. <laughs> but yeah. Nothing that comes to mind other than, like I said, that, that lightning storm that Dan and I walked through was probably one of the worst. I assume you're thinking of the mountain lion for me, but honestly, I think the lightning, that's my scariest to that and a couple other times with the same thing. But mountain lion, there was definitely an adrenaline rush and all of that. But in the moment, it was a lot less scary than it was, I don't know, engaging and interesting and, I mean, there was the element of this could go south quickly, but but I also felt somewhat in control of the situation, so I wouldn't rank it as quite as scary as you know, a bunch of lightning bolts striking right around <laughs> you that you have absolutely no control over. <laughs> totally, and you were... Uh taking pictures while the mountain lion was stalking you so you didn't seem all that scared to me i blame the the millennial in me for that <laughs> uh, he'd, he'd have been leaking from multiple orifices if he'd have been on around me in other words i'd have <laughs> shot the hell out of it <laughs> i mean yeah I, I i would be i would be quite worried all right, next next question from Scott is can you talk about your aftercare process? Go for it. Well, <laughs> well, you know, we we use the plastic bags and the tape. When I I get home, I poke a bunch of holes in the bottom of the bag and I've got a tub that I've got uh full of water and I've got some of the kelp fertilizer in it. I don't know if that helps or not, but it's it it makes me feel like it might, so I use it. And I let them soak in there for if it's really dry out, I'll let them soak overnight. And if it's fairly mo- you know if, it, if the moisture content and the pads fairly decent, then I'll let them soak until bedtime, say 
11 o'clock and then I'll take them out. And then I just put them in the shade uh, until I can get the boxes built. And, and then once I get them put in boxes, then they go in the shade. But it's early morning sun till, oh, I don't know, for maybe two hours. And then they're in the shade for the rest of the day. Do that for about oh, a month and a half. And then gradually move them out into a little bit more light. The biggest key with boxing them is, is not too big of a box for a pot. Make sure there's not a lot of excess space in there. And then really make sure they're, they're locked in tight and they're not rocking around or moving. Because that'll either break new roots that, that form or just discourage the tree from putting any new roots out into the soil. So, um, and when we first started doing it, or when I first started doing it, I was always trying to make it look pretty. You know, to where you'd put bamboo in to try to lock the tree in like it was in a in a bonsai pot. But then I've gotten more uh, utili- utilitarian, shall we say. And if, if there's a spot you can put a, a support stick in it, it gets a support, you know, from the side of the box and then wire it to a piece of good heavy deadwood or something just to support the tree so it doesn't rock. Because we'll get wind. Dan's place gets worse wind than i get but our winds will, you know we can get 50 mile an hour winds on a regular occasion so it'll rock the boxes pretty good one reason we use supports might be because we tend to b- dig a lot bigger trees here lately than we used to well this is true too they don't look that Do think- big when you start digging it get done it's like holy crap yeah do you think that uh putting them on the ground helps with aftercare I think so. I mean, we'd we'd listen to, uh, oh, I think stuff that Randy Knight had said about them uh, getting moisture from the ground and helping keep them hydrated and and uh, not putting two by twos on the bottom, you know, for air circulation. He 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 had said that uh, it seemed to be better for him if they were sitting right on the ground. They get uh, more humidity into the boxes, into the bottom of the box, I guess. They didn't dry out as bad. So that's, we started just letting them sit on the ground. And now after after the first spring that they, they've woken up, then I'll, I'll put them up on the, on the benches, if, even if they're still in the boxes. But the first year, they, they, they sit on the ground. And then when we water, I always water around the around the gravel too to get a lot of humidity. Nice, very nice. All right, next question, and this one is from the Bonsai Nut Forum. Uh, so Hemi is asking if you can talk a little bit about what you think makes these trunks look so cool and interesting. So, for example, he's saying, like, what what are the natural influences on these trees that contort and twist and uh, make these make these trees good species, g- good for bonsai? Mother Nature is just brutal. Yeah, that's pretty you much name it in that in a nutshell. Lightning, hail, the wind out here, you know, seventy mile an hour wind. So probably getting sandblasted sometimes and 
snow, snow load. Yeah, you'll have some of them where they don't. I'll have a fifteen foot drift over them. Yeah. For but I'd say in my mind, wind is probably the most sculpting factor. Yeah. Well, that and yeah. desiccation just because a lot of times our humidity is ten percent. Yeah. Crop cycles, insect spores. You got. I don't know. Yeah. You can pretty much name it. Mm. Woodpeckers, <laughs> elk, porcupines, an elk, a bull elk, or a, a buck using one to rub its, antlers. rub its antlers on. I mean, yeah. Or stepping at sometimes a tree on the side of a trail getting knocked as they're going by. Cattle, you know, a lot of these, a lot of the places we collect. I think that's a misconception. A lot of people think that we're up like in some pristine and, and we take pretty pictures because it's a pretty area, but it's, we're not in, we're not in the wilderness areas or the national parks. All those places are closed off to this type of thing. We're in, you know, we're in ranch land. They're being grazed by cattle and. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. One. Kind of interesting thing that I think about is uh, there are ponderosa pines in the Sierra, but I haven't seen many that are are really twisty. Every once in a while, you'll find one that's pretty twisty, but I think that they are more rare than they are the the Rocky Mountain variety. And I wonder if it's mostly a genetic issue or if it's the wind, because in the Sierra, it's I think it's not as windy as it is out where you guys are. And I remember driving out to see you and there's like all these signs that, that talk about the wind and my car was getting blown around a little bit. And uh, so I do think that the wind has something to do. And I, I wonder how much of a factor it is with the twist with Ponderosa, which is probably one of my favorite characteristics in trees. Twist. I love twist. Some of that's just their habit. Yeah, too. And I don't know as far as a Rocky Mountain version versus the Sierra version, but I mean, we always joke. So this happens regularly, where you'll find a rock that's got a lodgepole, a limber, and a ponderosa all within very close proximity, and the lodgepole is straight up in the air. Doesn't even look like it's ever experienced wind or anything in its life, and the limber is knocked over deadwood all up one side kind of looks windblown and then you get this ponderosa just crawling across the rock spinning and spiraling and you know prostrate so they're just they all they all respond to those same elements differently so so finding a good lodgepole with a lot of characters really rare so also, yeah, spruce yeah. too, but on the fir, they they're just prone to growing straight. I mean, you'll see they'll be clear up on the top of a rock pile, and it should just be getting blasted. And the spruce and the fir just growing just straight as a as a rocket. And then you'll go around to the other side, and maybe get down into some underbrush. And here's a, a, a lodge pole that's just. Or a fur that's just all contorted, and I mean, it just it's they're like a unicorn. Yeah. You you find them every once in a while, I but do. the ponderosa, they're they're more so finding the straight ponderosa is probably say harder. Yeah, 
Nice. But it's got to be genetic, I would think, for years, for years in the Sierras. Yeah. If I would imagine, just the way they they are here, they're more prone. The ponderosas are definitely more prone to have twisted branches, and and then the the spruce or the firs or the lodgepole. Yeah. Of all the trees, the ponderosa. When you see a dead one, or you can see the dead wood of even a perfectly straight, big old ponderosa out in the middle of the forest, a lot. If you can see the grains in the deadwood, they they even spiral, just going straight up in the air. The grains spiral, so so I would imagine that that plays into the fact that when they get knocked over, bent over, blown over, that that they kind of have a tendency to twist with that. So. Uh, Ponderosa Sunday. It was desiccated. It had been just windblown. I don't know how it, it might be, have been laying there dead for 30 years. But on the outside shell was a spiraled OC. So the spiral that you would you would wire a branch with, kind of that spiral on the outer wood and on the inner inner wood, that was about about an inch thick. And on the inner core, it was a little bit of a spiral, but not not as much. It was it was pretty intriguing. It was almost like a glue lamb a beam or something. It, it, like there's two different structures. Like the old old uh, your your holding not holding wood, but your your inner wood, and then the outer wood had more spiral to it. It was pretty intriguing. I I did a little video of it, but. I play it now, but we can't. This is a podcast. <laughs> Very cool. You should message that to me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. One one thing that I have been enjoying trying to challenge myself with lately is uh, I'll I'll look at a yamadori, and I especially like if it's like in a show, for example, and I'll try and think about how that tree was situated in the mountains and see if I can tell how it was situated when it was in the mountains. So, you know, for example, like generally the deadwood is facing the elements and the the lifeline or the, you know, the the area with bark is against the rock. So I, I try and take things like that, or, or maybe sometimes if there is a rock, the tree is like growing over the rock and it, it alters the shape of the tree. I like to try and think of and see if I can figure out what it was like in the natural environment. And it's probably, it's, it's hard to do, but some, with some trees you can tell, and it's just fun to pick those things out. I think you, you two are uniquely qualified to, to be good at that. Maybe sometimes they surprise you. You know, Brian mentioned this a few times and I think he's right. Even just the sun uh, the sun exposure, I think, can kill off some of those upper portions of the of the tree that really just get get beat. Or the UV rays and our intense, super yeah. intense sunlight at this elevation can can even just cook that side of the tree, and so that's a good that can cause deadwood there too. But that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Nice. 
All right. Uh, ne- next question. We may have covered this. Canorin from St. Louis is asking, as far as post-collection aftercare, do you have any tricks beyond boxing in pumice and applying bottom heat that you use to help maximize survival of collected trees? So any other tips and tricks? We haven't had the best luck with bottom heat, but that might just be our environment. I don't know. We we might have to experiment, experiment with it a little bit more, but yeah, we've actually, we've lost more trees with bottom heat than we have without. Just one, one winter in it. Yeah. And one, one, one tip I would say is if you're going to try something new, don't put the best tree you ever found as your experiment. <laughs> I'll I leave it at that. Yeah. Great tip. Great tip right there. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, uh, well, I question... guess. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> uh, question. Do you guys start fertilizing right away? Do you wait like a certain amount of time or do you just start fertilizing at right after you box it up? I don't fertilize as enough as much as I should. But uh, as far as a newly collected, I've never fertilized those until if I do, it's it's fuller. Not not putting it into the soil mass, not a drench. Come here, full air, and, and a little bit that that might drop into the soil, but not yeah. not a heavy fertilizer in the soil at least until they seem to be somewhat established. Until you can see see things pushing. Yeah. I, I don't huh. know. That's just <laughs> yeah. just my take on it. That doesn't mean I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I I don't know what I'm talking about either. I'm not sure. I mean, all these things, it's not like anyone's doing scientific (laughs) experimentation with, you know, a very large sample size. So it's it's hard to really know. Uh, I actually just start fertilizing pretty much right away. Usually I'll wait a couple weeks. I'll box the tree up and then a couple weeks later, I'll start fertilizing. And I'll both both, uh, putting, usually I use Osmocote. So I put Osmocote directly on the soil, but then I'll also uh, foliar feed as well. But I I don't know. Like a slow <laughs> release? Sure. Like a slow uh, slow release on the soil. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah and I have yeah. done that. And trees I'm particularly worried about borers or stuff like that. I might even do, I've done a like a three-in-one with the, yeah, with, and, Mostly what I want is the um, insecticide and the fertilizer because we don't have too many fungus issues with as dry as we are, but mm. but at least it makes me feel better that maybe I'm, I'm boosting the tree against the borers, whether it actually works that way or not. I don't, can't guarantee that, but. For sure. For sure. Gotcha. All right. Uh, next question is from Colorado in Colorado. And <laughs> these are from the Bonsai Nut Forum. He's asking, what are the physical attributes of the locations you find your best trees in? So does north-south facing make any difference? Are the trees coming from granite slabs? Or are there other environments to find good collectible trees? Uh, there's... 
other environments you can find them. I mean, the the collectability might not be as good. You know, granite's hard to beat. I mean, your your rock pockets and your cracks are, are not enormous usually. Like there's some uh, sandstone I collect junipers in, and and it's it's really challenging sometimes just because of the the cracks are, are way different than in the granite, but it's still achievable. But it, it uh, the diggability is not as as good, shall we say? And south southeast, I would say, is your better faces, but closer. Your exposures, yeah. But north side, you're usually in a lot denser, denser uh, woods or, or, or oh, uh, cover with trees and such. And on the west side here, if there's anything in the rock, it's usually attached to the sole of the earth, and there's no way you're ever going to get it out. Might be the best trees you see, but. But they're, the reason they're there is because they're getting blam, blasted by everything God and nature puts towards it. Because all our weather comes out of the north, northeast, or northwest. Yeah, no, and I mean, obviously we're talking about the, the type of species that we collect. There's, I mean, Utah junipers, maybe they're coming out of granite. I don't know, but most of what I've seen don't come so much out of granite and then i've got friends that collect pinions and i think they're mostly digging those out of pretty rocky soils and then um i don't know there's there's special situations like the finn in colorado where they dig a lot of those colorado spruce you know that's not off of granite but so there are plenty of other situations you can find great trees it's just going to depend on the species and the location and just kind of got to learn how to collect those trees i think it's usually doable it's just going to take learning yeah absolutely i i think that the location is and the type of environment that these trees come from is so important and i love collecting trees off granite it's the only way i want to collect trees just because of like the things that we mentioned, less probably survivability, just like Steve, you were talking about with the ponderosas in the dirt. I think I'm really curious if people find other cool areas where trees get naturally dwarfed, like the fin or granite, if there's other ways that naturally dwarf these trees, I would love to know. But like, I don't really know <laughs> what those other ways are. I know like animals yeah. will eat them. Um, other than that, uh, you know, getting beat up by things, but like, what else is there? There's probably other ways. I'm not really sure exactly those other ways. I want to know them. (laughs) Yeah. Just look for harsh environments where trees grow. I mean, you got, you had the podcast with it. What was it, Matt in Michigan? Yeah. Yeah. He was talking about bogs and cedars and and larches, you know, that's a totally different, but it's a harsh environment. Extreme in its own So. It's really just an heck button woods on the coast. It's it's just anywhere tough trees grow in a really tough environment and respond to it, that's you're gonna find interesting 
trees. Yeah. Well, and then if there's any kind of uh, a hard substrate for them to be growing in, there, there's got to be a chance for a pockets, pocket trees also, mm-hmm. I would think. It's true. Because like I said, with this sandstone that I dig in the junipers, it, it, there are pockets, but they're not as prevalent as in the, in the granite. And so it's it's it was a big learning experience digging trees in it. So and that goes with anything. You're going to have to give it a shot and use what knowledge you have to gain more, basically. Most definitely. All right, I think uh, I think just one more, and this one is from Colorado as well. Uh, so he, he's wondering specifically about limber pines, and he is wondering uh, how you analyze if a tree is collectible or not. And he's wondering if wiggling, if the tree wiggles, it, does that play any factor? Sometimes when we first started, it was, oh, if you can get it to wiggle, it'll come. Well, not necessarily. A lot of times, if it'll wiggle, that means it's got one heavy root that's kind of holding it where it's at. And if you work it back, then the heavy roots going into a crack or what have you, but, but you don't a lot of times have a really good fine root pad right under it. So, you see a root pad wiggle with the trunk. Then you're, that's a really good sign. Yeah. <laughs> but, but otherwise we would prefer to find a tree that doesn't wiggle over one that does. Because if you can just rock a tree around, that's where he's saying it's probably just got a long root running through that pad that doesn't attach to any fine roots right into the tree. Yeah. And we'd rather find a solid tree that doesn't budge, but it's got a nice mass of soil around it. Then we know, okay, well, if we can find where it's anchored, there's a good chance that it's connected to all this soil rather than, you know, yeah. Yeah. When we, both of us, when we started the, folks would tell us oh if it moves it'll come it's like, well, you know. yeah <laughs> well then um, a lot of times you'll find a crack and if it's a real say a say a six inch wide crack and it's really deep that can lead to problems too because then a lot of times you'll have a real deep uh, uh, tap root that goes down to the center of the earth and you think it's going to come, but it ain't. I mean, yeah, we've even found where the trunk keeps going another two, three feet down. Yeah. In the soil. With the junipers, especially, or, or moving a rock, say, that's sitting on a juniper. And you're thinking, well, that's going to be all pad right underneath that. Well, you move the rock, and all it is is a big old humongous trunk going for another foot and a half. And it just, and, and then it disappears into a crack. And you have no fine root pad or roots at all. I mean, it's it's all a case by case thing. And like I'd said before, if a guy's just first starting out, start out with some simple trees and build your skill set up to where when you can come back to the ones that are just just barn burners, and you, then your success rate's going to be better. But you're going to kind of know how to deal with them. I don't. No, there's too many nuances with limber pine versus any other pine in a rock pocket. Yeah. He was was also asking, uh, what type of micro environment are they found in? Limber pine specifically? 
Well, lemurs are, are like a, a, a border species and there's a different terminology for it, but they're, they're right on the edge of your juniper country all the way up into the high stuff. I mean, they're, they're throughout the whole, the whole gamut of, of, of the timber. You tend to find limbers in a lot harsher places where a lot of the other species don't yeah. do as well. They don't have to compete with the other trees. They're, they'll be up on really exposed areas where there's not much else growing besides limber pines and other, you know, maybe some junipers that have been hammered flat, basically. But a lot of that's because of the, the, because of the nut hatch. Yeah, the, the birds. The, the birds that's with the white bird, kind of least. Yeah, yeah, the birds. So that's where they, they deposit the seeds or what. Nice, man, Dan. The uh, shoheen limber that you—I I think it's shoheen. It's very small, fits in your hand. Yeah. The one that you oh, just the posted. One, the one that I borrowed him. The what? <laughs> <laughs> he keeps trying to get it from me. Oh. Uh, I would Someday. be too. I would be too. <laughs> that tree is killer, man. I love that. I thing. covet his. Oh yeah, man. We've been looking ever since to try to find more. <laughs> but no, that's a unicorn there. By golly, yeah. Got to make a uh, a whole Shoheen U.S. native display, right? All all U.S. native trees. That would be so cool, and that one definitely belongs in there. That'd be fun. Probably gonna have to team up with some people to make it happen at this point. I'm yeah. working on my Shoheen collection, so. Love it. I've got some good commons, some junipers, and uh, roof sprues. Little Shoheens. I love those Shoheens. They're, they're an anomaly in their own right. A Shoheen tree with character is is a job. I mean, that is the one thing that everyone wants, but probably the ones we're least likely to get rid of since yeah. we find so few really good small ones. Makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you guys so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. I have absolutely enjoyed this. I, I apologize for the, the lag. I think that that made it kind of funky, but uh, I still think that you guys gave some absolutely incredible information i love following your stuff you guys are really pushing bonsai forward i think you're doing really good work collecting and uh supplying just the highest quality trees to for american bonsai so i greatly greatly appreciate it and uh thank you guys so much for your time i really appreciate it was there anything else you guys wanted to plug or talk about or anything before we head out thank you Thanking you. I mean, it's it's been enjoyable doing the, the podcast. It's been fun. Yeah, I've enjoyed watching your garden progress too. It's it's been kind of cool to see it materializing. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> I know all um, the bonsai nuts. I logged I logged back in for the first time in a, a very long time to bonsai nut today to read those questions that you had. Ah. I've spent a lot of years there, but just with kids and life, and I just haven't. That was one of the things I didn't have as much time for. So, totally get that. Awesome. 
but thank you guys so much for your time. I really appreciate yep. it. You're back, yeah, man. So, thanks. Thank you.